When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, welcome back. So, you know, once again, today, I, I, you know, I'm on this coronavirus kick, and we can call it that. I mean, the reasons for why I keep talking about this COVID-19 virus, I mean, it's really twofold. First of all, I find it interesting, and, and this is my podcast, and, and maybe that should be enough. Now I understand, you know, I, I also need to pay attention to, to what you guys want to hear. But, you know, that should be enough. I, I like it. But but I also think that in terms of, of economic uh, importance to the, the economy, to, to markets, financial markets, financial system, and, of course, even, you know, precious metals, getting back to, to sort of the road of this channel, it's it's hugely important. I mean, I, we have to understand that this COVID-19 has the potential to be one of the defining events, series of events of, you know, at least our generation, maybe of the decade. Right, you know, this is far different than SARS. This is, which would be new, newsworthy in and of itself. Obviously, it was, but but more significant than Ebola. This is this is getting out of hand very quickly, and that's sort of you know what I've been saying for, gosh, three, four weeks now. I mean, this was way back in, in January when I started kind of covering this, just as you know the media started picking up on it. You know, the official cases was was maybe double digits, triple digits, and here we are now. You know, looking at. Upwards of 60,000 confirmed cases, and that's probably just a, a, a fraction of the total, maybe a tenth of the, who knows? You know, it's so hard to say with this this virus. Um, you know, China now is, is actually warning today of, of uh, more large increases in that. You know, as we, you know, the other day we had, actually, I don't think I've mentioned it yet in my podcast, that the big increase, uh, the over 14,000 new cases that they reported in a single day in the Hubei province of China, which the following day was followed up by, all things considered, a pretty large increase. Uh, I think it's 4,000 some new cases, not as large, and it has to do with a new, you know, reporting change. China is is basically reporting more cases that are clinically diagnosed based on symptoms and whatnot, uh, not just based on on you know actual tests confirming that that's the virus responsible. Which makes sense. I mean, if you're in Wuhan right now, I'm sure that. You know, the, the COVID-19 is kind of the predominant respiratory illness. I mean, I'm sure maybe the, the you know, influenza or, or other bugs are out there, but that's kind of the predominant one. And so why not count that before you need to actually, you know, go through a test, which obviously they haven't been able to, to do a ton of. And so, so as I said, you know, they're warning of more cases here. Um, and, and, and if you look at the economic side of things, which is obviously what this channel is, you know, it's a big part of what I talk about in this channel. We have this article from you know, zero hedge or, you know, some different financial firms, uh, banks and whatnot are trying to get a sense of just how impactful has this been on, on China's economy? I mean, obviously there's a little blurbs here and there about, you know, is Foxconn restarting production or not, you know, or Tesla, or, or you see you know, Apple, Starbucks, McDonald's closing their stores. I mean, in reality, it's, it goes much, much beyond that, but that's some of the more, you know, U.S. domestic companies that we might focus on and see how they're doing in China. Well, what this, you know, some of these firms, I forget exactly, you know, if it was Morgan Stanley or, you know, I don't have it off the top of my head right now. And they're looking at some of this different data on the ground, 
for example, I look at emissions year over year and, and look at where they're at. And, and you know, by, by all accounts, I mean, emissions right now, uh, which, which are, should be a pretty good proxy for transportation, for manufacturing, for electrical usage and whatnot. I mean, it's like uh, anywhere from, from 50 to, to 80% off of the normal. Right, we're only seeing the, the amount that it is. It's only twenty to fifty percent of normal, meaning it, it has dropped by anywhere from fifty to eighty percent. Right, and so that's—I mean—that's not just industrial production. That's uh, transportation, mass transit, and, and, and cars, and, and 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 all the different things that go into to you know the, the society and, and you know the manufacturing powerhouse that is China. And, and they look at you know various cities whether it's Wuhan or Shanghai or Beijing, right? They even look at traffic levels, which are drastically lower. I mean, even in Hong Kong, where this isn't as bad and, and the response hasn't been as uh, severe in terms of, of quarantines and, and you know, shutting down society and, and, and travel in public, even then, you know, it's still off from its normals year over year. I mean, it's, it's really great. I mean, if, if, and if that's actually representative, if we're looking at a 50% drop in economic activity, I mean, thus far, you know, if this ended tomorrow, that'd be pretty significant. China's GDP would take a, actually a really significant hit. In quarter one and, and over the entire year, you know, that might be a couple you know, tenths of a point. But this isn't ending tomorrow. This is going on for many, you know, indefinitely, many weeks, months into the future. You know, I've, I've seen a lot of warnings lately about how this is likely going to become a, a issue worldwide for months, even years to come. You know, some have predicted that this is going to be akin to the new, you know, seasonal flu, that it's going to, uh, you know, come back, you know, seasonally every nine months, yeah, around that fall, winter, and springtime. And then it's going to go away again. And then this is, you know, so many people have been saying this is, this isn't, a, you know, this isn't as bad as the flu. I mean, look how many people the flu kills. And that's, I mean, that's just really intellectually dishonest. I mean, yes, the flu kills a lot of people. But for you and I, and, and I don't know who you are, but for me, you know, I guess I should say uh, a relatively healthy uh, 20-something. I mean, which one is more likely to kill me when it, you know, if I were to contract it? It would be the COVID-19, obviously. Right now, yes, I mean, the flu, even if we go by official numbers, who knows? I mean, this COVID-19 may have actually surpassed those those numbers for the flu in terms of death toll this year. But if we go by official numbers, it hasn't hit that yet. But but also, there's been far fewer cases. You know, I saw a study, a uh, recent study that came out today looking at something like 4,000 uh, cases, over 4,000 cases. And, and you know, the are not for it was actually pretty significant. It was in that anywhere from two to four range. I don't have the numbers in front of me to quote them. But the case fatality rate, the death rate, was you know slightly higher than 3%. Now, who knows? There's always been a bit of error in that. First of all, this came out of China. You know, you can maybe put a question mark on not only their numbers, but sometimes maybe some of their academia, right? You know, the party line. But, but a little over 3% case fatality rate, does that take into account things like uh, asymptomatic or mild cases? Maybe, maybe not. So even if we lower it to 2%, even 1%, that is still 
pretty significant. I mean, one percent of the world's population. You know, we're talking seven billion, uh, seven trillion, yeah, seven billion. Um, you know, we're still talking what seventy million deaths. Somebody check my math on that. Um, and, and if it's two percent, you can double that. Right now, obviously, it's probably not going to affect every single soul on planet Earth, or at least hopefully not. You know, but if it gets halfway there, I mean, thirty-five million deaths. That is a lot. Plus, on top of that, you have uh, likely quite a bit of people that are going to deal with long-standing issues because of this. A lot of people are going to be hospitalized for many days or weeks. Very high uh, severity rate, uh, 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 high severity of, of the illness, uh, the, the rate of individuals that need to be hospitalized or placed in the ICU. I mean, this is this is not the flu. This is much more serious. And I think that you know the measures that China is taking and other countries have or eventually will take, they're, they're justified. You know, the other risk with something like this, just like with the, the influenza, is the risk for mutation. You know, you look at the seasonal flu, you know, each year they, they essentially have to come up with a different vaccine to, to, to do their best, and sometimes even then they get it wrong, but to match, you know, the, the strain that's currently in Circulation. So, I mean, of course, if we if we get a virus for this coronavirus, uh, for this COVID nineteen, you know, that's probably going to be updated. I, again, I mean, I don't know how unstable this virus is compared to influenza, but that would make sense to me. I don't know. Maybe influenza is more likely to to um, to change over time to mutate. I don't know. But the other thing with that is that it can mutate to become more lethal, more transmissive, and sometimes, you know, less, but, but if we're thinking about this, this microevolution, you know, this this transmissibility, it's more likely to, to increase because the less transmissible virus is, is probably not going to. And the other thing about this is, you know, again, I'm not a virologist, but, but in theory, if you have more cases of this globally, if we're moving into tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of cases of this COVID-19, that's more opportunities for it to mutate into something more transmissive and or something more lethal. Again, it can go the other way as well. But but more opportunities for this to become, you know, go from, from uh, bad to worse. You know, the other thing I wanted to talk about was, you know, in Africa. This is something I've been talking about for a while now, between Africa, uh, places like India, Vietnam, Indonesia, uh, South America, very low to, to no case count in some of those areas. South America today, zero. India, very few. Vietnam, Indonesia, very few, all things considered. You know, it'd be a different story if this was like, I don't know, Serbia or or Estonia, right? But no, these are countries that are pretty close to and have good ties and a lot of travel to China, India, you know, Thailand. Myanmar, Vietnam, Indonesia. I mean, a lot of travel. A lot of chances for this to transmit it. And in some places like Singapore, which is a, a large city, but still fairly small compared to some of these countries, has, you know, coming up on three digits, uh, three, you know, triple digit numbers. And I think it's 70-some cases last time I checked, or 50-some, you know. And yet Vietnam, the entire of Vietnam, has less than that. Now, of course, that's ultimately just their healthcare system missing a lot of these cases. In Africa, we finally have our very first case in Egypt, right? And and Egypt, I mean, it's it's not the epitome of, of 
you know, the world healthcare system. But, you know, it doesn't surprise me that maybe Egypt, you know, Egypt or, or somewhere like, like maybe Tunisia, you know, Morocco, South Africa, I mean, maybe a little bit more developed healthcare systems. That's kind of where I expect the first case to maybe be detected. But every day that passes in which we don't have detected cases in all these, you know, sub-Saharan countries, that becomes all the more concerning for me. Because if you look at, you know, probabilities of the spreading, we see it spread to most Asian countries by now, most Southeast Asian, um, you know, many European countries, United States, Australia, probabilities statistics would suggest that it has spread to most of these African countries as well we just haven't detected it same thing goes for for South and Central America to my knowledge no confirmed cases yet does it mean it's not there that they've just been spared so far I tend to to highly doubt that I mean again just going off of probabilities you'd think at least one case would have made it through and one case truly is all it takes I mean it all starts from a patient zero in the first place and so who's that patient zero for Mexico or for Brazil I mean and, and of course the R naught for this is, is huge you know the low estimates is two which would still be pretty transmissive but but in the high estimates you know fours or sixes I mean that's scary especially for for us a, a country that would be caught off guard and it's only a matter of time then. I mean, every day, every week, every month that goes by potentially for some of these countries where it hasn't been detected, detected gives it more and more time to spread. Ultimately, it's going to pop up on people's radars because you're going to see people dying or being hospitalized left and right in these countries. And it's going to be a full-blown you know, epidemic, hundreds of thousands of cases before people detect it maybe in some of these areas. Now, I know this... The WHO and, and other organizations, they have uh, uh, workers in these countries uh, looking for this. But you know, we're talking about some very poor, some sometimes very rural or very urban, low-income areas that are going to ultimately probably be affected by this. You know, the example I give is, is uh, you know, Democratic Republic of the Congo, you know, a, a city like Kinshasa. Right? Or Mumbai or New Delhi in, in uh, India, you know, or Jakarta in Indonesia. You know, those cities could, could really get it bad. I mean, Wuhan's a huge city, but, but, but by all accounts, it's, it's, it, I don't want to say there's no, I mean, I'm sure there's plenty of low income, there's plenty of low income places, uh, poor healthcare access in, in New York City or Los Angeles. Right, tent cities or homeless populations, sure. But but these cities I'm talking about, you know, really take it to a whole nother level. And and this could silently spread for days and weeks. I think it is right now in some of these places before it's ultimately detected. Right? And so ultimately what this what this means is that it's going to to extend well first of all magnify the the impact the scale and the amount of deaths ultimately that occurred because of this COVID-19, but it's also going to extend the, the period in which this is serious. I mean, let's say best case scenario, China's really crazy control methods bring down the, the case count, or at least the amount per day, and, and legitimately, not just based on their phony data or their manipulated data. Well, great. 
but that's just China. What, what, what happens when Southeast Asia has to do the same? What happens when countries which can't enforce those types of, of, of laws, you know, again, like a Democratic Republic of the Congo, I mean, look how well they deal with something like Ebola, which is less transmissive, uh, far more deadly, but, but you know, may, may not pose as much of a threat as, as COVID-19 when or if it has arrived. I mean, well, how do those countries, Brazil, Mexico, you know, handle an outbreak on the scale of what's going on right now in China? And, and what does that mean, economically speaking? What that means is that, A, those countries are going to have to shut down production one way or another, just like China has for the most part, you know, really shut down economic, you know, the whole economy is going to grind to a halt, just like in China, which which has all of its uh, add-on effects of, of, you know, affecting U.S. Or, or European production or, you know, Japanese, South Korean, Australian, etc. It's going to affect oil price and all of that. Um, but, but also it's going to allow for a whole population to become another uh, potential source of outbreak in other countries. Let's say Mexico. Well, it has a huge outbreak. Well, all of a sudden, I mean, Trump's, Trump's immigration policies might look really good to a lot of people, even on the left. But beyond that, people are going to travel in and out of Mexico as long as there's not a full travel ban in place. And so the potential for all those individuals to then, once again, maybe recolonize this in, in an area where it's receding, wherever that might be, this, this COVID-19, that possibility arises, right? And then multiply Mexico by 10, you know, 10 other countries that can act as, as a, you know, you can call it endemic in some of those countries, or, or full-blown epidemic or pandemic or whatever the correct term is. Um, in those countries, hundreds of thousands of cases all of a sudden it becomes very easy for those cases to spread to to other areas. And so you have all sorts of cases already where, where that's kind of happening. You know, I brought up the, the case recently about how a woman had traveled to uh, Thailand, I think, Vietnam, came back to South Korea with it. The, the, the problem is, is that she traveled where there when there was like very few confirmed cases. I mean, the odds of her contraction it was, was pretty darn low from those confirmed cases and yet that's exactly what happened you know we had a case recently i forget where it was but it was i think to, to japan somebody had contracted it on a flight or or on their way back from not beijing not wuhan or shanghai or or, or anything like that but from hawaii right and so you ask yourself you know what what was the mechanism of that was somebody running around hawaii sick or was it somebody on the plane from Hawaii? What? You know, so there's all sorts of, and, and you see this, you know, similar situations in, in Europe, UK, France, Germany. You'll see more and more in the United States. And, and a lot of them, honestly, I think are just being missed at this point in time. I mean, the nature of this COVID-19 is that it's it's not like Ebola in the sense that, you know, you, you, you have a high likelihood of dying, especially without medical care, um, or that the symptoms are extremely pronounced terms of their, their gastrointestinal and other, you know, effects of, of Ebola. Um, no, I mean, this could infect, theoretically, 100 people in a town of, of 10,000. And nobody would know until you get that first confirmed case, confirmed test back. Because in the meantime, they could chalk it up to the flu, and if it's not a positive test for the flu, maybe they'll say it's something else. 
right? Maybe it's an elderly population, you know, maybe the first few deaths are, are elderly and, and it could just be, you know, community acquired pneumonia, whatever. Who knows what it is and, and, and then ultimately they get that first. And, you know, as I've said in the past, I mean, the, the, the intent of me bringing up these scenarios is not to try and incite fear. Maybe action would, would be helpful in terms of preparation, whether that's food or masks or whatever, or, or even, you know, isolation eventually if, if it, you know, it does come to your community or whatnot. Um, but, but it's more so to, to get you guys thinking. I mean, this is, as I said, I mean, this COVID-19 is not deadly enough to, to spark concern right away in terms of, of, you know, if it enters your, your country, your county, your community, right? It's going to take many cases, I think, in many of these areas before healthcare workers and whatnot realize that, that it's even present. So anyways, I hope you guys have a good weekend. You know, stay, stay updated on this news. Um, I, I'm sure I'll be back next week talking more about it and, and who knows what type of data and what type of, of information we'll have on our hands by then. But, but I expect this to be a mainstay on this channel for quite a while, weeks, months into the future. Because again, going back to what I said at the beginning, this could be one of those defining events of, of our generation of the decade. And, and obviously the economic importance is huge. So as always, thank you from the bottom of my heart for tuning in to today's podcast. And God bless.